And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East Utsira, West Utsira, South West Utsira and North North East Utsira. Wind South West, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, now, now. And welcome back to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. Eastcast is a monthly delve into the arts, the culture and the community bubbling up in East London, but resonating way beyond this corner of the world. So wherever you're listening, good to have you with us. I'm Pearl Wise and I'm here with Katie Haler. Good evening. And Johnny Virgo. Hello. And this is our last East Cast of the year, and what a show we have in store. So, A.D. Johnson will be joining us a little later with some live inspired, Americana inspired folk. I discover a new gallery dedicated to art made in the East, the East End, that is. <laughs> and um, I'll be exploring the history behind the festive tradition that is the board game. And we get a taste of East London with the scientist and sci-fi writer Ian Green. But first, we delve into East London past, present and a little bit of future with Simon Cole from Hackney Tools. Welcome, Simon. Uh, Welcome. Good evening. And uh, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I'm I'm really glad that we could have you with us. So tell us um, a little bit about Hackney Tours. You've developed this over the years. It's quite unique. So what's special about your tours? Well, um, yeah, it's kind of been a bit of an unorthodox journey, really. Uh, I started out in educational tourism, taking uh, mostly American Canadian teenagers across Europe and then thought, wow, this is actually... uh, I mean, I didn't like history at school. I thought it was a bit dull. Uh, I think it's Paul Morley that says that history was kind of shoved down your throat like medicine. You know, you didn't like the taste of it, but you were told it was good for you. Um, and then I was like, oh, actually, history's a collection of really interesting stories. And as you get to know about it and understand it and join the dots, it kind of informs your view of the world. And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be amazing if I could do this job where I live? And then I'd just moved to Hackney and kind of a whole new world had opened up for me. And um, I I was originally going to move to Berlin till I discovered Hackney. Uh, Kind of found my tribe as well, my community. And, um, yeah, the the world opened up. And then I started looking around. You know, as a tour guide, you're always looking at stuff. And then looking at the signs, the panels, you know, in places like Abney Park Cemetery and going, oh, there's actually some really, really juicy, interesting, a lot of it radical history here in Hackney. Uh, you know, someone need to be talking about this. And for example, the uh, there was a lot of um, uh, do, you want, do, we, do we call it feminist because it's about women, but a lot of really interesting history where women were the main characters. And I was kind of joining the dots and saying, oh well, there needs to be a tour about this. So that's how my sort of feminist polemic, um, because you know, when you go around Westminster, 
just because all the people you talk about, and not all of them, but a lot of them, thinking of all the statues in Parliament Square, which are men, tend to be men, but you wouldn't call that a patriarchal tour. So it's kind of a polemic. So I, I just joined Dots, and then I was hanging out in Hackney Wick a lot, and then I was seeing the changes there, and everyone's talking about gentrification. So it was, it was a kind of, really, it's, it, it all comes from me exploring how to be in the world and what's going on around me in a part of London that's changing fast and yet has a really deep, rich heritage. So um, you're not the first person that's that I've met who thought, I'm going to move to Berlin and then ends up in Hackney. There, there seems to be a, a link. And I guess it's, you know, places like Hackney Wick and the, this, the, the um, high concentration of artists and creative people living in one area has has done that but in history in historical terms what is why is there so much of this kind of amazing history in Hackney what what's so special about this particular area of London well um you have to go back a few hundred years you know and when you're at school all that kind of stuff can be quite dull you know guys in pantaloons and that sort of thing and you think well what's the relevance of that to me but um I mean the way I describe it is is that in the 1600s onwards, Hackney becomes like the kind of an occupy for the 17th century because you have this big schism after the Restoration where, um, you know, it's those pesky Puritans, of course, the Civil War. So we've got to crack down on religion. Anyone who's not down with the king being, you know, the, the, the head of everything, basically, um, you know, an absolute monarch, head of church, head of state, etc., etc., has to get lost. And there you have to get, you know, go five miles or so from the city. So the story goes, guess where they end up? So although, you know, a few of those, I'm not a historian and there might be a, a couple of those details that might need a bit of finessing um, if you were teaching this in a university. But the, the gist of it is that there's an alternative community, a vibe that starts there hundreds of years ago and it gives you people like Mary Wollstonecraft, the founder of modern feminism. It gives you uh, Daniel Defoe. Writer Robinson Crusoe gives you some of the finest minds and some of the biggest political radicals of the last few hundred years. Um, for example, um, on the edge of Hackney, you've got people that were movers and shakers in the American Revolution meeting in houses that are still standing today. Now, you know, the formation of America, um, quite a big deal. So it's it's not hard to, to sort of... To, to basically understand that the, the legacy of events that have taken place in Hackney... Um, have been pretty seismic and I, I feel we're still, you know, it still has that kind of, it was written off as being bolshy, you know, and full of revolutionaries. Um, even in the, in the days when Gilray was doing his cartoons, you know, Hackney was this place of sort of, you know, unrest and um, people that were rabble-rousers and anti-establishment. And it's not that long ago that Stoke Newton, um, I've got a friend who, who moved to Stoke Newton a few years ago and her grandmother said, oh, my word, you can't go there. And she said, why not? She said, Stoke Newton, it's oh, it's really rough, you know, squatters, anarchists and all this kind of thing. And she had to point out to her grandmother that it's changed a little bit since then. Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> um, you don't just do the kind of, you know, the, the tours on foot. You also do tours on wheels. You do running tours. How does, a, I'm intrigued, a running tour? Do you get, how does that work? Well, surprisingly similarly to uh, to a walking tour, really. I'm, a, I'm also a personal trainer. Um, I've got quite a few interests and I'm, I'm not one for sitting still. Uh, so it was a natural synergy. But also, I mean, it's it was something 
I'm always exploring. I want to know what's going on around me and really, you know, on, on mini breaks, I'm the one that gets up at nine in the morning um, while everyone else is, oh, actually it's not that early really, is it? Nine in the morning. But it's not bad on a mini break. Yeah, and like <laughs> other people are sleeping, you know, and I've gone for a run around to see what, what I can discover about the area. Um, so it's another way of being in the city, another way of being in the world. And you, you, you get the buzz of, of, of discovery and, and learning stuff with combined with company. And then, of course, you get the endorphin buzz of exercise. So, um, you know, you have little stops, you, you take in a view, get your breath back, um, and then you carry on. But it's, it's not as um, sort of out there as you, as you might think, really. I gotta ask, um, how fast are the running tours? As someone who is not a runner, could I hack one? Well, here's the thing. I mean, your my job is to uh, fit around the client, right? So I have to cater for different abilities. I'm not as fast as I used to be, so going a little bit slower. I, you know, I'm like, oh, do we really have to go at this speed? Actually, I'm, I'm quite liking it because it's easier for me. <laughs> but um, but yeah, you've got you've got to cater for different abilities. So you know, I don't know, like 10, no, let's say a 12-minute mile because, and then if, you know, if someone says, oh, but I'm still full of beans and I need to, I need to work out, then we have drill. It's the same thing you do when you're a, a, an exercise to run instructor. around the block a bit. Exactly. Yeah. Or you yeah. send them off on some intervals. <laughs> you send them, yeah, it's all ways and means. Before, um, before the show, we were talking about how important you think it is for locals to go on your tours as well. Tell us why. Why do locals need to discover a little bit more about where they're living? Yeah, so so here's the thing. It's like tourism has become a, a dirty word, but, you know, a lot of people go on holidays and trips because they're curious about the world and they want to see new places and they, they're, they're open, you know, and it's that mentality where you'll ask questions and talk to people in the way that you you wouldn't do at home. And I've I'm trying to kind of develop that here. And I think, for example... I'll say to people, you know, oh, you should come on a tour. And they say, oh, but I, I know Hackney. And so you'll say, well, you know, so do you know about the 400 years of descent? And they'll say, oh, no. You say, well, do you know about all the kind of alternative communities and subcultures? And we're like, um, no. And it's like, well, so, you know, kind of, do, do you know that this used to be 150 years ago, where you're standing now, was all fields and were no houses? No. And it's like, well, so, you know, we could, all, I mean, we could all, know more about everything right for sure um i don't want to come across as a sort of you know uh, clever clogs but I, I think appreciating i guess a psychogeography right appreciating more about where you live and i was i was thinking about it today before i came on the, on the show and i was thinking oh does this sound too sort of like late show that when you're going down the street in that that mode it's like you're moving in four dimensions and the the fourth dimension is uh, is like the history and the psychogeography, and for example, walking down the A10 or on the 149, going up the A10, and then thinking, imagining Boudicca coming down the A10, you know, going to uh, past Liverpool Street, and then just burning and raising London in AD 61, or the the legionaries, uh, the legionnaires move uh, marching north to to Lincoln and then up to Hadrian's Wall, perhaps never to return. So it's that richness. And it's it's really about being out in the world and, and, and also making connections. And it's taken me a, quite a while to be in Hackney to make those connections where you you know where the secret stuff is. You know that if you go down this street, you'll find this amazing social enterprise. 
um, that most people don't know about. You know the people that run it. You know the market traders. You get the banter. And then you start joining those dots. And what you get is a much richer picture of, of a really interesting corner of the city. We're going to have to stop there. There's, I know that you've got loads more to say, but um, we've run out of time. Tell people where they can find out about your tours and what you've got in the new year coming up. Are there any new kind of tours that you're you're working on? Yeah, well, I'll be doing something for the new Well Street Market, which was... Uh, Norman J MBE DJed there at the opening event. Very good it was too. Uh, some more markets, uh, tours around uh, Dalston featuring social enterprise, uh, street art, um, things like that, and promoting local independent businesses. And possibly bringing back the feminist running tour, I think, for spring as well. I think it's about time for that. And then uh, a few more sort of little experimental things coming up. We're kind of put them out there and see see how they go, yeah. Great. And, of course, the old favourite, Hackney Wick. Enjoy it while it lasts. Exactly. exactly. Question mark. Um, so if anyone is interested, hackneytours.com. .com, yeah. Yep. I should have said that, shouldn't I? That's yeah. all right. I've done it for you. Thank you. Um, and while uh, I, I, I guess, thank you so much for coming in. We're going to hear a little bit of shuffling because Ian Green is going to jump into your uh, chair. Um, so... Do you want to oh, yeah. take, take over, Johnny? Ian is a scientist and a writer, and I'm a big fan of his work, having uh, come across it in various places. His work's been read at play- events like the Liars League, uh, South Bank Centre, BBC Radio 4, and in various sci-fi and horror anthologies. And as a fellow genre fiction writer, fiction writer I'm always curious as to how scientists approach the act of writing, because... When I'm writing, I'm always trying to make it uh, as realistic or accurate as I can. But somebody who's actually got some knowledge, well, you know, that should inform how they write. So, Ian, tell us a little bit about your writing. Uh, Yeah, sure. So I've actually got a bit of a broad spread. I um, I mean, sci-fi writer is probably the best way to... Sorry. Um, Sci-fi writer is probably the best pigeonhole to to jump in. But uh, I've been kind of published across some more literary fiction, um, if you want to use that horrible term. And also, well, you did. You know, well, yeah, I did. Sorry. Um, and also more, as you say, horror and. Um, but science fiction is really what I love, and and I think it's interesting what you're saying about having the scientist side of me um, influence for writing, because obviously, one of the things you come across if you have any training in science is a lot of science fiction with really, really bad science in it, and it can be quite um, distracting, especially in uh, cinema, you know, um, film things like that, where you watch a film and you see someone doing something and just takes you out of it, and. Um, and it's one of those things where I think whatever you're an expert in, if you see someone doing that wrong in in, in media of any form, then it's going to distract you. But if you've got – because science is seen as this sort of niche knowledge, um, it means that a lot of people who are making uh, fiction or in whatever form just don't really give it the time of day to make it accurate. So, um, so you'd think that would make me very accurate with my science. Yes, yeah, so well, I, yeah, I was yeah. under the impression whenever I read anything of yours that this was gospel. Oh, I, I thought that your no, scientific I, background had influenced what you were writing. Oh no, it just means I know how to make it sound good. You know, um, I it definitely has influenced me. It's just um, it's just a matter of where you draw the line because obviously with science fiction, there's you know there's your more hard sci-fi where everything's extrapolated from what we know and what is going on now, and then there's sort of softer sci-fi where you know you can just uh, put someone on a silver spaceship and you don't really need to explain how it works. So I'm I'm a fan of both, you know, and I, and I think I've written examples of both. But um, 
yeah, certainly my my scientific background is, has meant I'm I'm very wary about wishy-washy science. What is your scientific background, by the way? Uh, so I have a PhD in epigenetics from Imperial and um, and then a few other things. So that. I don't so, know what's epigenetics. Epigenetics is um, so if you think about um, if you think about like music, if your if your gene- if your genetics is uh, is the the sheet music, then epigenetics is all the dynamic notation. It's all the kind of you know um, forte, pianissimo, whatever repeats, coders, bits and bobs all around that. So you can have exactly the same score, but it'll be entirely different music being played. So so I norm I I kind of. Re- my research background was looking at that in a cancer context, so looking at how you can muck about with that, basically, and um, and oh. and try and make things better. But you know, um, well, no, it's gone way over my head. But I thought <laughs> okay. we'd get it out then. That's fine. <laughs> All right. So, how is your fiction? You're, not, I can, you, our listeners can probably tell you're not a native Londoner. You have a bit of a twang. So you've moved to London. How uh, has East London affected your writing? It's very interesting, actually, if you look at my writing over the years. So I've been in Hackney for about five years now. Okay. And um, and before that, I was up in Aberdeen, which is where I'm from. And, um, and if you look at my earlier stuff, there's a lot of a lot of mountains and a lot of seaside. Um, <laughs> whereas uh, now, I, it's just, it's been very um, impactful on me, you know, living in this vibrant area, which is very, you know, um, multicultural and uh, so much history. And, and um, you know, like, like, obviously, there's a lot of history where I'm from, but it's mainly uh, castles and... Um, and the English being mean to us, so uh, there's only so far down that well you can go um, in some in some in some ways. Whereas in Hackney, it just feels like everything that could possibly have happened has already happened within two miles of here. So you're and you know there's all these stories, but they're all iterations of the same sort of thing. If you go down, if you go down Old Street and there's a bunch of guys getting uh, getting drunk in the corner, then there were some legionnaires doing that two thousand years ago. It's just yeah, and I mean London is really layered. And talking about psychogeography. It, it's amazing how how London is full of um, just different levels of history, levels of context, levels of story. How does that weave into your writing? Well, I think it's um, it's been very beneficial in terms of making you aware of that when you're building your own world. So in science fiction, there's there's a fear of coming off as slightly two dimensional because it's just like this is what the world is like and this is how it works. But if you actually look at London as a really good example of how everything has these layers of complexity below it and you know like okay this might be how it works now but how did it work 100 years ago or a thousand years ago and so just being aware of that and letting that sort of influence you to make sure you always have that depth behind what you're trying to produce but um but east london specifically it's just so um i mean the writing community there is so vibrant and so kind of active as all these great little magazines like open pen and minor lits and you know um it it just really engenders a lot of experimentation because it's kind of a safe space to just write whatever you like and if it's bad people will tell you and you know you can move on but <laughs> all right um so what have you been working on recently or is uh, there something you'd like to share with us um, i've got something i'd like to share with you but um recently i've been i've been kind of taking a break so i had a couple of years focusing a lot on the short fiction and you know all the varying things you were mentioning yeah uh getting out there and i've, I've kind of taken a break to focus on some longer pieces so i've got a, a novel which is currently with some editors sort of in its final uh phases of maybe being killed um yeah but um but aside from that the the big thing i had out um earlier this year was uh the open pen anthology which is an um any good bookshop or um well not any good bookshop quite some good bookshops um you can check out openpen.com but this is a uh, open pen magazine's east london fiction magazine and they did an anthology earlier this year which is a collection of 
old favourites of theirs, which they published in the magazine, and new stories from those authors. So I was invited back to kind of add a new one. Okay, and what's this but, that you're going uh, this to one, read? I was actually going to read. This is one um, which is probably not very appropriate for this podcast because uh, it's it's one of, it's from when I first moved to London. This was the first thing I got published, but I, it was published by this little, at the time, uh, small indie press, open pen in East London, and they just said, yeah, we like it. We'll publish it. It was the first thing I had published. And so they kind of came back to me four years on or whatever and said, hey, we're putting this anthology together and we liked this. Can you give us something new? So it's just, you know, for me, this is where my kind of journey in Hackney began. Obviously, okay. very different. Can you introduce it anymore? What's it about? Uh, this is about, um, oh, it's kind of about monsters and uh, fog and kind of uh, ghosts coming out of the dark and eating people. And it's all a bit dark and horrific. But I'm just going to read the opening to give you an, an idea. So this is a uh, Har, which is in the Open Pen Anthology. Okay. Okay. Uh, so the beach was silent. Fog drowning out all noise and enveloping the dunes and sharp blades of marram grass in its folds. The house was perched just past the high tide line, a simple affair of worn wood, adorned with coiled rope and nets and surrounded by rowboats in varying states of disrepair. The lonely porch lamp failed to do anything of note, a soft blur of light engulfing the front of the house and nothing else. The boy stood just outside the open door, looking out. He was aware of his breathing, his heartbeat, the blood coursing through his body, the cold of the still air on his bare skin. They called it Har a sea mist thicker than any fog that would roll in with the tide and swallow the world. His father was asleep and the house was silent. The boy closed the door behind him without fuss or noise. He looked back, fearful of reprimand or sudden clamour, but stillness reigned. He stepped forward and off the porch, onto the sand. I'll, just, I'll leave it there. If you want to read more, then you can check out the anthology. Um, all right, brilliant. So where would we find out more about your writing, Ian? Uh, so for me, um, I'm very easily found on iannvergreen.com. Uh, it's got kind of links to all the stuff I do. So I write for a couple of websites and it's got links to all the varying uh, short story collections my work can be found in. And, you know, they're all kicking around somewhere. Or I'm normally wandering around Victoria Park uh, drinking a can of Iron Brew and looking shifty. So, <laughs> All right, then. So if you see him, then watch out. You've yeah. been warned. Thanks very much. OK, no Thank problem. You. So from Hackney to uh, Christmas, because if anyone didn't realise, it's nearly Christmas. So, <laughs> sorry, let me ask you, Pearl Johnny, in fact, everybody, does anyone have a favourite board game? Yeah, Hungry Hippos. Okay, <laughs> that wasn't what I was expecting yeah, you to say. Oh, Excellent, I also enjoy that. Uh, anybody else? Any favourites? Uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons, ooh, okay. So, has anyone heard of Dixit? That is my favourite it's um, a type of like picture word association game, but with these amazing dreamlike images. Uh, it's awesome. You should play it and you should ask for it for Christmas. Anyway, whatever your preference, for many people, board games are somewhat of a Christmas tradition. For some, the good old board game conjures sorts of coziness and comfort. And for others, they're a way to vent the steam and frustration and annoyance that's been building up over three days uh, with your family cooped up in the same place. And of course, a good game can be the catalyst, catalyst even, for that traditional holiday argument. But nonetheless, let's get festive. So last week, I caught up with the curator of Game Plan, the board games exhibition at the V&A Museum of Childhood in Bethnal Green. I've creeped in to uh, the Museum of Childhood quite late. There aren't so many people around, which is pretty perfect, I think, for an exclusive tour of uh, Game Plan. So, yeah, so this, this was the 
Hello, I'm Catherine Howell and I'm the Collections Manager at the V&A Museum of Childhood. Board game playing has been going on for a very long time, uh, but also right across the world um, in different cultures, different countries, um, and has been an important part of people's lives. According to Catherine, there are broadly four types of board game. So race is one, then you have chase, you have space, and you have displace. I feel like that may have been engineered for rhyme. Am I, am I right? <laughs> um, it could be, but it just, it just so happened to, <laughs> to sum them up. Each type has its own purpose, and with examples that run through vast swathes of time from thousands of years ago, right up until the present day. First up in the collection was Senate, a particularly ancient game. Right, so Senate actually sometimes known as the sort of national game of, of ancient Egypt because it was played by everybody. It's a very simple race game. We have a, a, a lovely example here that we've borrowed from the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. It's, it's very old. Um, the oldest Senate game is actually dates to about 3000 BC. Uh, we have a lovely picture here of Nefertari in her tomb playing the game, so we know it was very important to the sort of the higher echelons of society. But we also know that it was played by the ordinary people because you find it sort of scratched into stones. Um, and it's a relatively simple game, so everyone would play it. You can actually get, by, uh, get a digital version of it as well. The, so Senate physically was played, you know, 4,000, 6,000 years ago, and then people still playing it today, but playing it on their, ta- on their phones or on their tablets. Ah, yes, the digital revolution. That's something we'll come to later. But first, I wanted to know who actually plays these games. From the sound of it, this wasn't something that was played by children. And actually, to me, board games are associated with children, but they weren't in the past? Not so much, actually. I would say most of the old, um, the, the, what we would call the classic board games like chess, drafts, backgammon, uh, are more associated with with adult play. Um, I think they're the sort of games that get taught to children, maybe at a, you know at quite a, a young age, um, but they're not seen as children's games. There's a quite a defined line there between ones that were were for adults and ones for children. A lot of the really ancient games were just they were just luck because in fact they they derived from sort of from from gambling in fact. So um, and. The, the thing about even strategic games that were, were played, the things like chess and drafts, is that the early players gambled on that as well. So if, if, if you can imagine people, you know, gambled a long time ago and had maybe had dice or something that they threw, um, somebody decided it would be a good idea maybe to introduce um, an extra element to this. So instead of just gambling what you were going to throw, that you would have a, a bit of a board where things were moving around. Um, and so this became an important part of the, of, the, of the gambling aspect. For children in particular, games of chance um, are the easiest ones to, to, to learn and to, and, and, and to get to know. So um, although, you know, there are lots of lots of games which are mostly chance, but then with a little bit of, of strategy that come, sort of come along later where you've got something that happens on the ball, but then something that happens off the ball that you have more control over. Mm. But we might get onto those a bit later on in the, in the 20th century. <laughs> so I'm pretty convinced that everyone will know Ludo. I've never actually seen it in this format, though. Tell us about this. 
Right, well, we've, we've got two examples um, for, for, for Ludo here, or, or Pachisi, as, as this was the original name of the game. So Pachisi originated in, in India um, and is normally played on um, textile, and it's in the shape of a cross. Um, and so you could wrap it up and take it around with you, um, and so you could play sort of anywhere. Um, but again, very, very popular. Um, it's, it's associated a lot with the, the, the Feast of Diwali, um, and the example we have here has some really very special playing pieces, which you know you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily have because this was a sort of game that you could um, you know play with some stones or something if you wanted as well. So e- an easy an easy game. But then it it, it travels across from from the east to Europe, um, and it gets turned into Ludo in in England. Um, some people keep the name Pachisi. In fact, in 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 the States when it when it went there, even though it did, it turned into the same sort of children's game, um, they call it Pachisi over there rather than Ludo. Um, but Ludo became you know a game to, to teach to young children because it's relatively simple. Again, it's it is mostly pure chance, but there is a little a little bit of uh, of strategy involved once you get into it because you are playing with four pieces. Okay, I wonder if the little kiddies uh, <laughs> running around might like to play. They might be a bit too young, actually. The perfectly timed clatter you just heard there came from a couple of very excited youngsters eager to get involved with the fun on offer in the exhibition. And why not? It is the Museum of Childhood, after all. And speaking of childhood, next up is one of my all-time favourite board games. So this is something I definitely recognise. We've got a table with two stools, and on this table is a snakes and ladders board. Yeah, well, this, this is this is quite a, a classic uh, design, isn't it? You've just got the basic snakes and the, and, and the ladders, um, and this is very popular with our with our visitors. I have to say, we get lots of people sitting here playing, getting quite excited about playing a game of snakes and ladders, which is which is good. Uh, absolutely pure chance of course there's nothing you can do yeah. to, to, to dictate what happens in this game it's the roll of the dice and that's it um, but of course again like like Ludo it's got a very interesting um, you know background history again it comes from from uh, India um, and in fact we've got a, we have got an Indian example of one up, up on the wall here um, and this you see you can see the snakes and the ladders it's the same it's the same basic design but the, these were used um, to sort of uh, it was a game but it was a quite quite a serious game because it, it, it depicted your your soul's journey through life and of course the idea was to get to nirvana or heaven or whatever it is um, and it was it was actually played in slightly different versions but they look more or less the same by 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 the three main um, religions of india at the time so you would have had a, a muslim version a hindu version and a jain version um, and they, they just vary in, in 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 sort of bits and pieces to do with the game but the basic thing was yeah you were going through life So much more than just being a fun way to spend an hour or two, board games have, since ancient times, also been educational. So let's skip forward in time and western latitude to Victorian Britain, where you can see that moral imperative was stamped, not very subtly, into board games. We've got an example here from from the late 19th century, uh, but it actually still has the sort of virtues and vices on it. So that, um, but but done done in a pictorial way that children would recognise. So let's take a closer look, see if we can identify some. Okay, quarrelsomeness. I have never heard that as a word. <laughs> One square. We've got quarrelsomeness, self denial, um, depravity, covetousness. Oh, the fifth virtue. These virtues are numbered. What? 
What's yes, because, well, I mean, at, at, at this time, from from a religious point of view, the sort of like the the, the, the virtues and vices were would, would have been known and taught to children, particularly, um, and so they would they would actually know what these were. So you you know you or, or you know you learn it. So self denial here. Um, takes you up to the very end of the game, which is the seventh virtue. So these games are really more than just games. They're reflecting a type of, I guess, social expectation in the time in which they're played. Board games really weren't just for the elite few. Board games can be made to pretty much any budget, and being so accessible they can become somewhat of an institution. This is, this is Go, so, and again, this, this is quite an ancient game, so it's, um, it's at least 3,000 years old, and it originated in China, but it's probably better known as, as a sort of a Japanese game because it was in Japan that it really took off as a, as a game and is you know, practically their, their national sport. Um, and this is a space game, so you, the idea is that you, you have to gain space on a board. Um, it's, it's actually very, very complicated, so you have a... Have a, have a board that's um, that's got lines on it, and you play white counters against black counters, um, and basically you're tra- you have to lay your counters down and either surround your opponents or surround an area, um, uh, and that's how how you win the game. But there are um, as many possible moves in the game as they say that the same as there are known atoms in the universe. Um, and in fact, wow. <laughs> it, 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 it has a, it, it's always been sort of seen as, as, as too complicated a game for a computer program to be devised that could actually beat a human. But that did happen this year. Wait, what? Technology has outsmarted a centuries old strategy game. That seems disheartening. Does it spell the end for the board game tradition? There were two major changes in the way board games uh, were played, well, are, and are played today. Really, it's it's it's, uh, it's come up to today. Started in you know 1960s and 70s and that sort of thing. So the first thing, obviously, is the influence of, of digital technology on board games. And so what you have is people turning uh, the classic board games into computer games. So we've got a screen here which shows some quite. quite um, uh, ancient graphics of Cluedo and Trivial Pursuit <laughs> on the screen there, um, and then you also have you have digital elements that sort of start creeping into games as well. So it varies from from old vinyl, like a, like an old record, um, up to using a, a, a an app on your phone to to help you with your with your game. So instead of computer games overriding the original board game, there's a sign of synergy going on. You've got an app that helps you to complete the, the physical, tangible board game. The game itself, and actually the, the game in question here, um, XCOM, actually started life as a, as a pure computer game, and then they turned that into a board game. So back very much in the 21st century, where Monopoly now takes Visa, my final stop was Catherine's office, where I was anxious to get a few last-minute Christmas recommendations. In any any family household that doesn't have Scrabble should have a game of Scrabble, but that's a personal favourite of mine. But there there are a couple of the sort of more recent modern games that, that I've got to know, you know, while I've been doing this exhibition um, that I really like and I think they're good. Um, Pandemic is 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 a good recommendation. Um, it's it's a cooperative game, so you're you're playing against the game, and I think even if you lose the game, it, it's it's actually quite fun. Another game which is, uh, I think, more, more suitable for a range of, of ages as well because quite young people can play it, um, and it's called Camel Up. Um, and it's, uh, it's actually a, it's, it's a betting game. It's quite, quite, quite strategic. What do you think the magic is about a board game? Why are they so attractive to people? 
Um, you can play a game with people and maybe people that you don't even know very well, but you can still play a game with them. Um, but another thing about it is, of course, it's, it's, it's a way of sort of acting out uh, things in a, in a safe environment where you're not going to, you know, nothing catastrophic is, is going to happen. Um, so you can play, you know, very serious games of conflict, but you're not actually going to end up killing anybody. Oh, so there you are. Lose yourself in a board game this Christmas, a therapeutic way of channeling the festive rage. And if you can't wait until the 25th, then you can head down to the Museum of Childhood's board game quiz night tomorrow. And you've got plenty of time to check out the exhibition too, because it's on well into the new year. Not killing anybody. They haven't been to my house. (laughs) Happy Christmas. (laughs) Um, So thank you for that. we have a listener in Paris, which I am in France somewhere, Nantes. So hello to our listener in Nantes, our one. <laughs> Bonjour. Um, so we are now joined in the studio with his guitar is A.D. Johnson. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Um, so we're going to have a, a find out a little bit more about you. But first, mm-hmm. you okay. are going to play us an exclusive Oh, I'm track. not actually. No, you're not. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to do that Later. afterwards because okay. that means retuning my guitar again, if that's okay. okay. That's fine. That's fine. Okay, so what are you going to play for us now? I'm going to play it's another new song, but I, I, which I've yet to record. It's uh, called a song called Black and Blue. Okay, thank you. Thanks. I found you when you were black and blue And you found me when I wanted to be free My lover, my guide, you show me city lights, and I held you tight when the monster came back night. So won't you please understand when there's healing? Black and blue I lifted your life And many boxes up down flights And filled up your room With colored birthday balloons And I carried the weight Of that letter in the post And I shed a tear Had it read what you So won't you please understand When the master's standing there and is watching the band Oh, it's hard when you speak of the black and blue Thank you. 
Thank you so much for that. So um, you've just come off a tour with Scott Matthews. That's right, yeah. How was yeah. that? It was great, fantastic. Really great opportunity to uh, play with somebody I admire, whose music I admire, and there's um, a nice chap too. So it was great, yeah. Um, I, I, I sort of first got into his music probably about seven, eight years ago or so, and uh, met him at a festival in Suffolk few years back and got chatting and ended up supporting him in my hometown in Colchester uh, and and we sort of stayed in touch and so sort of went from there really. Hmm. And um, I kind of, when you were playing, I, I was wondering about your guitar playing and you've actually mm. got a degree in classical guitar, is that yeah, right? Yeah, not that you'd know it from that performance but <laughs> necessarily. But yeah, and it's interesting actually because I don't normally perform on this guitar. I brought it in tonight to play this new song on. Um, so yeah, I, I, I did do a degree in classical guitar and still play as well from time to time with a trio. Um, and I guess the singer-songwriter thing is a completely different discipline in many respects. So how but, long uh, have you been writing songs? Oh, uh, for about two hundred years. Yeah. No. Stupid question. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> a stupid answer. But um, I, <laughs> uh, the A.D. Johnson stuff. I, my first album came out in two thousand eleven. So. Um, and I've, you know, I started writing a day a year or two before that um, on my own. But I've been in sort of rock bands and things and and what have you over the years prior to that as well. So um, yeah, this A.D. Johnson thing is a the latest thing, I guess. And I'm sorry, it's in your biography on your website, mm. so I have to mention this. Um, mm. You've had a past life also as a furniture restorer. <laughs> yeah, do you still right, do yeah. that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, um, in in the uh, in the summer holidays because I teach guitar as well. Um, the summer holidays, I, I do a little bit of work, um, restoration work, down at Merchant Taylors Hall uh, in, in London, and um, sort of French polishing panels and this kind of thing, just a bit of extra money to help fund the music. Really, you know, yeah. Yeah, I guess you know you, you have to find find ways to to keep afloat. We all have to do I think, that. Yeah, yeah, especially today, it's not, it's not easy as a musician, you know. But um, yeah, 
And um, I was trying to find a tenuous kind of East London link, but I did okay. find one. Okay. I did find one. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you uh, released a song uh, more or less this time last year, just on in the new year, yeah. and it starts with a kind of story about ah, a couple well that done. meet on Brick Lane. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just a little romantic. It's it, it's it, the, the it's a kind of a, yeah. It's a little romantic story, I guess. And a slightly nonsense song as well. This is sort of a Beatles-inspired kind of thing going on there as well. So it's a tale of a couple meeting, and it's uh, yeah, a little bit of fun, really. New Year's Day, yeah, I released it on New Year's Day, yeah. And so. you're now working on a new a new album. Yeah. How far in uh, sort of into that are you? How, yeah. When can we expect a, a new release? From well, you? next year, <laughs> hopefully, but probably towards the end of next year, I would imagine now. Um, I've got the material down. It's just getting the people together in the room at the same time and organising a pledge campaign. I'm hoping to uh, do this via pledge music, which is effectively a, a music crowd crowdfunding um, does, that, does that work? Yes. I mean, there's a lot of musicians and well-established musicians are now using that as a way of, of, of raising funds to, to uh, finance uh, their work. Uh, they're sort of cutting out the middleman or labels and, and using that as a way of generating money. Um, I know artists who you know, have said that this is the first time, having completed a successful campaign, that they've they've come out of, uh, have produced a record and not been in debt. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because, uh, you know, so it's it's uh, it's quite a, a popular way of, of approaching, yeah, funding and... And I know um, you've got a couple of dates coming up if people mm-hmm. do want to see you live. Mm-hmm. Um, where can we yeah. find you? Yeah, um, my next gig is at My Senior House in uh, Blackheath, which is on Friday. It's Friday. And then my last show of year is at uh, is in Colchester, at the Free Wise Monkeys, where I still live, actually, prior to moving to London. Um, and that's on the 21st of December. That's a, kind of a regular gig for me every year kind of Christmas knees up yeah so I'm so looking forward to that. friends and family yeah, yeah that kind of thing and yeah yeah that's definitely it's, it's a nice little show and it's a nice way to finish off the year you know um yeah. so you you need to do some retuning I do. Yeah. quickly um so you are going to play now a song that you've never played anywhere you've played on resonance a few times before no I've not done that either but, <laughs> but not not this show but I mean yeah. not the song but you have played on Resonance a few times, but you never played the song at all anywhere. No. So we are—we will be the first to hear it. What, what's it called? It's called "Put the World on Standby." Okay. Well, all I've done is um, put a little clip up on uh, Instagram of it, and so this—you uh, know—I like taking risks. <laughs> Which was so do we. So do we. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So here we go. I'll just tune this. A bit of fine tuning here. Basically, it's a song about um, just realizing that you're kind of whacked and you're full of stress. And and, uh, basically, I I, I took some Sir John's Walt when I was feeling a little bit down a few years back. And uh, and I don't know. I don't know if it agreed with me, but it's it's opposed to kind of uh, you know help with um, stress and this kind of thing but uh, and anyway it's about taking some time out for yourself really especially in today's technological age with um, social media and dying for your attention you know yeah 
Okay, so I hope this will this will work. Here we go. <laughs> so, uh, someone could put the word on standby. I took a chance with Ross and Rose. I don't think I took the wrong dose. Don't think it agreed with me. Mercury or me. For the flowers so pretty Could do such a thing to me I find a place that can find me I draw the board and turn the key I need some time to myself All to get well my rollerball on notes on life and I'll ride No, I don't need the world today Oh no And the world it won't need me anyway So I put the world to stand by It can wait just for one There's a girl from overseas I don't know her, she don't know me A bell rings out in the silence Bring a famous words of love Makes you wonder at times like these But someone's helping from above I don't need the world today Oh no And the world, it won't need me anyway So I'll put the world to stand by It can wait just one more day That was Put the World on Standby, brand new song. And yes, you definitely pulled it off. It was fantastic. Thank you, Thank you so much.
definitely did. You're listening to Eastcast on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at Eastcast Show. And you can listen again to our interviews and music online on iTunes, Eastcast Show London and at eastcastshow.com. Uh, where you can also sign up to our monthly newsletter to get all our audio news straight to your inbox. So please go and do that now. Yes, do it. Do it now. Um, so we talked about Well Street earlier, and I've had my eye on Well Street for a few years, and it really has been changing, like many areas of East London. Um, and I discovered a new gallery called Unit G. <laughs> We're the only gallery dedicated to East London made art. We only show and we only sell art that is made in East London. That sets us apart. It doesn't limit us too much, but it does focus our minds geographically. But that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because we want to keep artists working in East London. We know that places such as Hackney Wick, when traditionally had the biggest concentration of artists in Europe, are under threat by development and also by the rental prices. And one way is that they can move further east, another way is they can try and get more grants, but we think a way is to sell their work. So I'm Kevin, Kevin Skinner, I'm the Gallery Director at Unit G Gallery in Hackney. My name is Magellan Marcelac and I'm the Gallery Curator of Unit G Gallery. Well originally when I was much younger I was an artist, I didn't go into art, I went into health and well-being, and at the same time I was going to First Thursdays and many exhibitions around here and getting to know artists got a place to, to stay in Hackney Wick, um, inevitably you know, got, got part of the uh, great art scene there and realised that artists in East London were under threat. So that's what motivated me to set up my own gallery and apply the business skills from the other business to this business. I arrived in London four years ago and I met Kevin through a screen print studio I used to work for in Dalston. So through that way, I met with a lot of uh, East London illustrators and East London artists. When Kevin came up with the idea of like helping uh, East London artists, he thought that I might be a good uh, person to work with, uh, as I already had a step in uh, in the field. The exhibition that is on at the moment is from artist Christina Banban, who's working from Mother Studio in Hackney Week. We discovered Christina because every edition of Hackney Wicked Festival which is like op- artist open studio of Acne Week that happen every summer. We organize uh, what we call our Acne Wicked Art Prize. So with like the gallery team, we just go around uh, artist studios and look at their work. From them, we shortlist five artists that we go back to see, chat with them a bit about that work and everything. And after that, we select one artist that we're going to give a solo show to. So this year, we've selected Christina Bamban. She's an artist from Spain, and she is depicting in, her, in that show like the struggle of being an artist in this part of the city. So we can really tell that there is a, a big urban environment in her work, uh, as well as just a daily life of an artist or even just a young person uh, in Hackney Week or even just a bit wider East London. In September, we were selected, uh, one of the few East London galleries to be selected, to show um, at the Saatchi Gallery's Start Exhibition, Start Art Fair. We selected uh, uh, our artist Conrad Armstrong, who had already exhibited at the gallery with an exhibition called Shadow Progress. The Tension exhibition um, was inspired uh, if that's the right word, by the, the Brexit vote, uh, which uh, Conrad and, and his collective, the Vicious Collective in Hackney Wick, weren't too happy with. 
and it produced uh, some great art and that's that inspired people at the start exhibition and we had a interesting performance there and we made we made our, our, ourselves known at the at the, the Saatchi gallery Let, let's put it that way so you've opened your gallery just next to Well Street which is the kind of street that seems to be quite effervescent at the moment lots going on uh, the market opened last week so well street is a is a uh, a good community it's a close community um, of businesses um, people who've lived around here for a long time but something's happened recently it's changed there are more uh, cool places more interesting places the market's resurrected itself so clearly it's a good place uh, to, for us to have started a gallery um, but we see ourselves as much wider than the Well Street. We see the East London community. We're increasingly showing work in other locations. And we really want to uh, broaden out to link in with other galleries. Our art map project, which Matt can tell you about, is one. And we, we sell online and we wanted to sell globally. So we have ambitions way beyond the street. But it's been a fabulous place to start. At the end of the year last year, we realised that um, as us as a gallery, um, every month we were trying to put our exhibition on art listing, different art channels, tourist guides and everything like that. And it was taking us a lot of time to like tell our story to all those different type of channels to realize that most of the time um, they weren't used. And when actually you really look at a map of London that points at galleries or everything, you see a big gap. That correspond to Hackney and Tower Hamlets. And we thought that it was a real shame since there are so many art galleries, artist studios, or any other type of art activities happening around here. And we think that uh, we need to drag people a bit more to this bit of the city uh, for them to know that there's not only one or two dots on the map, that there are actually like probably five or six on the same street. First of all, there has been a, a great source of inspiration for us to uh, to come up with this idea. Uh, we had uh, as well Parasol Unit, who did like the uh, Eastern Trail. I mean, First Thursdays isn't quite what it was, I have to say. I mean, I've been following First Thursdays for many years. You know, I remember, I remember the, the atmosphere, it almost got too much in Viner Street. But it used to be the thing, and, and you know, you wanted to be on their, on their map and get their art bus and so on. And we've been privileged to have their art bus twice, so it's not like we haven't worked with them. But it is about one, one evening a month, and it doesn't have all the galleries, and not every gallery wants to open on a First Thursdays because of how it's developed. It's in a different state now, and so we don't think we're replacing that. We're adding, very much adding to what... And developing what they've done. Whereas with the Parasol unit, they have, they've started with a few galleries, mainly further west than us, and we, we want to do something that's much more east, East London. And, you know, we're talking with them as well. Um, and so we, we realise there's a gap. We need to try and we do our bit to fulfil that, but we need lots of collaboration with the galleries. We can't do it all ourselves. So it is sadly time for us to say goodbye. Eastcast will be back soon on Resonance 104.4 FM with more sounds and stories from East London and beyond. In the meantime, you can find everything on eastcastshow.com. And to play us out is The Glass Tower aka the shard actually uh, which is very close to our studio funnily enough. Uh, so this is The Glass Tower by AD Johnson. Driving home from the country Been working long days for a wage Passing signs for the city warms me It warms my heart, no, you're not far away
My weary soul won't be beaten The silver apples are driving me on There on the skyline is a beacon rising and I forgot to say, it's very important. Merry Christmas. We will be back with more from the East on the 11th of January. So thanks for listening. Lost house, bless